welcome back to another episode of Freewheeling. I'm your host, Abby Mickey. This is the first episode of 2020, so really excited to be back for a full year. And as it's the first episode of 2020, we're going to start it off a little bit different than the previous episodes. Um, Starting from now, for the rest of the year, we're going to do news as well as whatever the podcast will be. So this week I have a really in-depth interview with an old teammate of mine who is two-time Paralympian, uh, multi-time para world champion on the track and on the road, and now works for, uh, works with WADA and USADA and, um, is an athlete advocate in clean sport. Um, so it's a really awesome interview, but before we get into that, the news and to talk about the news with you, I have a very, very exciting announcement. I have wrangled a friend to chat with me. So Lauren, hi. Hi. It's been almost three years since we were podcast buddies. Yeah, but we got the band back together and it's going to be the best. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, me too. So I, the news this week, what have we got? The current world cross country mountain bike champion, uh, Pauline Fran had iliac artery surgery for the second time in a year. That's one bit of news. Yeah, I mean, uh, if we look at what happened last year with Pauline, I think she was out for about four months uh, with the surgery, and she had it roughly around the same time of year, but she made a massive comeback in mountain biking, and actually, I think her first race back, she won Val de Sol. Mm-hmm. So if anyone's going to make a good comeback in the year of the Olympics, it's Pauline, and I think you mentioned earlier, Abby, that uh, her focus is now purely on mountain bike and cross. Even though she signed on with Canyon Tram, she has no immediate plans to race the road. Yeah, she said in an interview recently that she's the road is her least favorite aspect of racing and she likes cross and mountain bike better. So she's going to be focusing on that, especially this year leading up to the Olympics. And yeah, like like you said, last year she came into form um, after having the same surgery pretty much exactly in time to peak for the world championships, which she won. So given the timeline, I think it kind of bodes well for the Olympics for her. Yeah, I think she's got plenty of time, and we've seen, what was it, years ago when Marion Voss broke a collarbone and then came out and won. So, I mean, this surgery is obviously, yeah, a lot harder to come back than a collarbone, but I think if anyone can do it, it's probably her. She's definitely one of the favorites for the Olympics. I think that, like, most of the time this surgery happens, just from everyone I know who's ever had this surgery done, they always come back stronger. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes for her second time yeah, around. Exactly. Look at Anne Van Vluden. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, in other, like, kind of weird news, so the debate between Lorena Wiebes and Park Hotel Valkenberg came, has finally kind of come to an agreement recently in the last week. Um, Lorena Wiebes has been trying to leave Park Hotel Valkenburg, who she's signed with through 2021, uh, for a better team or for a more advanced team since Park Hotel is kind of a development team. But this week it was announced that they've come to an agreement that she's going to race with them until June 1st, which is when you can cut your contract and move to another team, which, I mean, this whole situation... I'm torn between whose side I'm on because it's kind of like just finish out your contract. It's it's like or at least finish out 2020, like maybe try to argue a year off your contract. But and with Park Hotel, it's like, well, she doesn't want to race for you. You don't make her race for you. I don't know. What do you think? It's yeah, it's tricky. I mean, it's interesting to follow all the debates on Twitter. Um, On the one hand, yes, follow out the contract. In my opinion, I mean, she's such a young rider and she had an incredible year on this team. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's happening within the team dynamics wise. Like we will never know. I obviously, obviously there's a lot of money on the table from another team, but if she's looking at it long-term, she's going to have a very long career and who's to say if she goes to a bigger team, she's going to get the chance to win as many races. Say she goes to Sunweb. Well, you know, they've got Corinne Rivera. If she goes to Bowles, they've got Yolin, even though she's focusing on, um, on the track, they still have other really world-class sprinters. So 
yeah, for me, I understand it. There's probably a, a nice carrot dangling there from a few teams, but a contract is a contract. And, you know, the thing is, it's just gotten quite ugly now and she's not going to want to be there. It's going to be awkward between her and management. Um, I'm not sure if it will affect the other riders' opinions of her. Um, and as, like, the I think the DS said, they've reached an agreement, but no one's actually satisfied yeah. So. He said in a, the team owner said in a statement that neither neither side is happy with the agreement they've reached and that she might not even race until she's allowed to leave the team, which I mean, I think that this makes her look really bad. And and yeah, like you said, who's to say she goes to a different team and has the same year that she had this year? There's more on the bigger teams. There's more pressure. There's more expected of her. She definitely wouldn't be their their top rider um, right off the bat. Like she needs to earn that right. And so it's kind of like I don't think either side looks good in this situation. No, and if you look a few years back. Um... I don't know, I randomly came across this, but Anna Vanderbregen, so she had a great season in 2012. No doubt after her performance, particularly at the World Championships, big teams would have poached her, but she stayed with her her smaller team throughout 2013, I guess like her apprenticeship years, and then 2014, boom, and uh, Anna Vanderbregen was winning Flesh Wallon. So, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Park Hotel Valkenberg is it's a smaller team than the teams that um, it's been said in the media that have been linked to Lorena Webus, which is Team Subweb, Trek Segafredo and CCC Live. But like on CCC Live, they have Voss. They've just signed a bunch of new riders that are really good. Soraya Paladin, like they're they're a powerhouse team. All three of those teams are powerhouse teams. And she wouldn't I don't know. It's a weird situation. The whole thing is weird. Yeah, well, I just think it's sad they've come to an agreement, obviously, but I can foresee it affecting the the spring. Definitely, definitely. In happier news, we've we've gone through the weird news already, and in happier news, Amanda Spratt yesterday won the, or I guess this is Monday, so two days ago, won the Australian National Road Championships in a two-up sprint against Justine Barrow, and Gracie Brown took third, making it a Mitchelton Scott one and three. So that was, I didn't get to watch the race because it was geo-restricted. Did you get to watch it? No, for the first time, because I'm in Belgium now, but mm-hmm. um SBS actually had some nice highlights, which was good. Uh, from what I can tell, it was like a crash mud race. So the crash early on really affected what happened throughout the race. Um, some key riders, I think, came down or were caught up. So, I mean, that Bunyong circuit's really difficult. And if you if you crash out or you get caught up or you miss the right move, it's very hard to come back. And if you do come back you've wasted a lot of energy. So, um, yeah, it was awesome to see Spratty win a third title. Um, she's one of my favorite riders and she has just gone from strength to strength every year. And I really hope that this is her year at the Olympics. Um, and that they've, I have no doubt her coach has structured her year based around that goal. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how the Olympics affects all of the racing this year, I think, because it, Some races will be bigger than they were in previous years. Some races will be smaller, just depending on the where they are in the calendar. Um, So it'll be really, it's going to be an exciting year, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, it's also worthwhile mentioning the ride by Justine Barrow. Um, She was so strong, and the reason why Grace Brown actually got dropped out of that group of three was the pressure that that Barrow was putting on and. Um, I had to have a little bit of a, a look up on, on her. I've heard her name before, and I do follow the Rock Salt team. Um, Kelvin Rundle's done a great job there. They've actually got quite a powerhouse team. Uh, one of their riders got third in the time trial, Emily Herfoss. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, she's actually 40, 41 years old, Justine. Whew, and, that's amazing. Um, that's so impressive. I know. I'm always really impressed with um, – the talent, uh, in the domestic scene in Australia, as you're very well aware of, uh, racing at the tour down under. Yeah. Tour down under last year was so much fun and it was cool to see the racing 
in Australia was like very similar to the racing in the U.S., which was really cool to see because you kind of think that the racing in the U.S. just isn't at the level of like Europe. But going to Tour Down Under last year was really cool because it was like it was harder than racing in the U.S., but it still wasn't the same as Europe, which it's always nice to kind of like switch it up. And yeah, Tour Down Under starts this week with it's January 16th to the 18th. So it's coming up quick Um, racing around Adelaide and Amanda Spratt has won the last three rate three editions of the tour down under um based on her form at the nationals i think she's on tap to win a fourth although i always hope that when a rider's won a race so many times that they'll kind of pass the torch on to a teammate but yeah which i mean it's best ride on the day right and if she makes a big move on one of the key stages like she did last year and the year before and the year before yeah um then so be it if she's the best on the day but uh mitchell and scott always has a stacked team and because it's a home race it's a race that they want to win and they kind of have to win it's it same applies for the men Um, And the really exciting thing actually about this year is each stage will be live streamed on um, Channel 7. So unless you have – is it a VPN, I think? Yeah, VPN in Europe and the States. Yeah, then you won't be able to watch it. But uh, for the people in Australia, it's really cool. Make sure you tune in because um, the networks obviously take note of uh, the coverage and how many people like viewership. So yeah, I'm pretty pumped about that. Yeah. It's going to be an awesome race. I mean, it's always really, it's early in the year. So there's a lot of people who are like really chomping at the bit to get to the racing and the Australians are on fire because they just had nationals. So it's always, I mean, it's just a really exciting race and it's bigger this year because Cadell's, which comes up right after it is a world tour race. So this year at tour down under there's a lot more european teams that have come down to race i know fdj were not there last year but they are this year so i think it's going to be a really good race yeah it will be amazing and i have to admit i'm really quite sad because i think this is the first tour down under i've missed since probably 2010 when i was just watching it Mm -hmm. um but yeah, it's my favorite week of the year. I think it's like adult schoolies, if anyone gets that reference in Australia. Um, and I'll be trying to watch each of the stages live. And it's it's uh, kind of crazy in Adelaide this time of year. I remember last year getting there and there was like every single person who was on my flight from Sydney to Adelaide had a bike and it, they weren't all racers. It's just this massive gathering of cyclists from all over Australia that come to Adelaide for this week to watch the men's race and the women's race at tour down under. And there's so many cyclists on the road. I mean, it's bananas. How many cyclists are out on the road in between, in between the two races. Like I remember riding around on the, the race ended on whatever a Sunday or a Saturday and then the next day we went on like a easy ride and there was hundreds and hundreds of cyclists on the road it was so cool I think the the really cool thing about this race is Adelaide's an awesome place to visit it's summer so if you're coming from Europe or the US it's a nice change Um, and it's just accessible and it's the first big race of the year so whilst there's some pressure it's still a bit low-key So you can enjoy yourself getting the K's before you go back to your colder climates and just enjoy Adelaide. Yeah, and hopefully the fires in Australia don't affect the race too much. I've seen a couple of photos of the Adelaide Hills that um, burned part of part of the roads that were burned that we rode last year and this year don't look as green and uh, it's just devastating. So hopefully. Yeah, I've um, tried to switch up a little bit by what's happening there. I live in Queensland, so where I live isn't, hasn't been affected, but it's, yeah, it's sad these places that you've been before and it's unimaginable actually. Yeah. Well, that's the news. Oh, last bit of news is that the previous Aussie road national champion, Sarah Gigante, who this year is riding for Tibco SVB Silicon Valley bank, won the time trial. So she's still a national champion this year, not on the road, but a pretty impressive ride by her. She's super young. So that was really cool. Yeah. I think we're going to see big things from Sarah this, um, 
this year. She obviously has proven that it was not a fluke that she won last year. Anyone who knows her knows she has a huge engine. She's young. And I think Tipco is probably the perfect team for her to make that step up to uh, bigger things. Yeah, like the good a good introductory team that doesn't race over in Europe full time, but does enough over there for her to get her feet wet and kind of figure out what the situation is. Yeah, exactly. So that was the news. Thanks for joining me, Lauren. It's great. I look forward to it in two weeks time. Yep. Two weeks from now, we'll be back. So here's my interview with Greta Namanis. And welcome back. I'm here with special guest Greta Nemanis. Did I say your name right, though? That's close. Nemanis. Greta Nemanis. Yeah, really close. I mean, there's a lot of letters, so I was like, it could go either way. Yeah. Just yeah. guess. You're 99% of the way there, uh, which is infinitely closer than most people get. So I don't know what to get personally. Um, and so when I started my original podcast which uh was called wheel talk the whole goal of the podcast was kind of to interview people and as the this is the first episode of 2020 but the racing season hasn't quite gotten underway yet so um i'm still gonna kind of once the racing season starts you'll hear more actual race coverage but for now i wanted to get in one in-depth interview with someone who i think the world should know a little bit better and i've, I've chosen you greta Oh, I'm flattered. I want to kind of start off by introducing you um, for anyone who doesn't know who you are. Um, you're a para-Olympian and retired a few years ago and now work with Clean Sport and are an athlete advocate and are just in general awesome. But can I start out off by asking you, um, how how did you get involved in cycling? Who are you? Yeah, uh, well... Like you have just said, I'm a two-time Paralympian in the sport of cycling and paracycling. Um, and I raced with the national team from 2006 uh, through 2015, I guess. Um, so a while. Uh, but I got my start kind of by chance, actually. Um, I was always really active in sports and really active in para-sport and adaptive sport, which is kind of unusual for a lot of athletes with disabilities. They kind of wind up in para-sport later on in their life. Um, but I actually entered an essay contest when I was in high school, and the trip, the prize was a trip to the Athens 2004 Paralympic Games. And one of the events that we went and saw was track cycling. And I remember just being completely blown away watching these people ride bikes around in this gigantic wooden bowl on a bike with no brakes and only one gear. And for some reason, I thought, oh, my God, that's awesome. Where can I sign up? I need to try this. And then I did try it and got totally hooked and then wound up racing for a long time uh, as a full-time paracyclist, uh, as well as a professional cyclist with 2012, uh, Peanut Butter & Co. 2012, which is now a sh a 2020 paracycling. Mm -hmm. With uh, world, world Time Trial Champion Chloe Dygart is probably the most known name um, who's currently still on the team. Um, but yeah, and that's how we met because we were teammates in 2014 and hit it off pretty great from the get-go yes yes yeah um and you raced so you went to the olympic games in london and then the ones in in beijing in 2008 so i competed in 2008 and the 2012 games um, and then world championships uh every year from 2006 through 2015 uh, and I won two titles, one in 2013 and one on the road in the time trial, and then one on the track in 2015. Um, so that was pretty awesome. Um, and then I actually wound up retiring also in 2015 due to a series of concussions uh, and head injuries and stopped racing in 2015, decided that it was no longer uh, worth the risk to my health and got into coaching. Uh, and some athlete advocacy work. And that's where I am today now is, I guess I would call myself 
a part-time lot of things, a part-time coach, part-time clean sport advocate, part-time athlete rights advocate uh, that winds up being a full-time, full-time gig. So, yeah, what I'm kind of curious about is, um, I mean, we can talk a little bit about your retirement and the concussions thing, because I think that when you got your concussions, it was still not as talked about as it is as it was even a year later. And it's kind of coming more into light how damaging concussions can be the more it happens to big name riders and stuff. It's like, yeah, this is a pretty big deal. You only get one brain and it doesn't heal like a collarbone. So we can talk about that. And I also want to know about about what you do with clean sport, because especially for anyone who follows you on Twitter, uh, you tweet about it a lot. Yeah. So I guess um, do you want to start with concussions or clean sport? Yeah, so how we can start with the concussions just because um, I'm curious, like how, not how it happened, because obviously you crashed, but how you went from like getting a concussion and the progress between getting a concussion and then being like, this is, it's time to step away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in 2015, I guess I had my last race, my last crash, uh, if you will. But leading up to that in the 10 years prior, I had had a a number of concussions. Uh, So the one that I had in 2015, I crashed in a road race. I got tangled up with another rider and went over the bars and wound up essentially doing like the Fosbury flop, you know, like a high jumper leaps over the bar and then falls on their back. And I did that on the road. Uh, So I hit my head, had no idea what was going on. Um, and then kept racing, uh, finished the race. I mean, was not at all aware of what was happening or, you know, what, what decisions I should be making or should have made. I was completely focused on, I need to finish the race just as complete now. I mean, in hindsight, now this really bad, you know, competitive attitude, which at the time and, and for any athlete that has gotten injured, been in a crash, you know, that's all that you think about is where's my bike. Let me get back on my bike. I got to get back in the race. Um, and so that was definitely my mentality. And after, after I finished that race, I mean, I stopped across the finish line and I couldn't find my way across this empty courtyard, you know, from the finish line to our team tent. And, you know, a teammate came over and I was torn up and nobody really saw, I mean, the pack saw me crash, but I don't think anybody, including myself, realized how bad off I was until I'd finished the race. Um, So I went home from Europe early. Uh, This was the first road world cup of the season. So I went home from Europe early, went for the next six months had appointments with neurologists and doctors and doing, you know, rehab and training. And, um, I actually wound up doing this because I'd hit the back of my head. So I had, uh, some vision issues and vestibular issues. So I actually worked with, um, an eye and vestibular therapist to kind of trick my brain into thinking what I was seeing was actually what was there in real life. Um, so I had to wear these special glasses for a long time, like with these prism lenses that would distort the light and stuff. So it really, it took me, I mean, two, I would say two years until I actually felt quote unquote normal again. Um, but in the back of my mind, because this was my sixth concussion, you know, I, I kind of knew even before that crash happened that I couldn't, keep crashing and hitting my head anymore. Um, and so I kind of knew that the writing was on the wall for myself that, you know, that, that was kind of the end of the road. Um, I was 27. I had all these plans to keep racing and, you know, had unfinished business and races, but that was it. You know, the, the road kind of took a hard turn and, and I wound up, um, no longer competing. Um, but that when that door closed, it opened, another door for a lot of different opportunities that I would not have considered while I was racing or that I didn't consider while I was racing. Yeah. So when you, when you moved away from racing, what did you, what did you do next? Well, I, like I said, I was 27. Um, I 
did not race collegiate. You know, there is not really, there's no paracycling for collegiate. Um, And before I had gone to college, I was already on the, with the national team and had gone to a world championships. Um, And so international cycling was totally my focus and I put school on hold. So, you know, when I was done racing, I was 27, had no, you know, valued job skills or transferable skills. I had no degree. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, I'll go back to school full time. That didn't work out that great because I was still recovering from a concussion. Mm -hmm. Um, and kind of just fell into coaching, if you will. Uh, so, you know, at that point I was like, okay, I need to figure out something to do. And, said yes to every opportunity. Um, and so one of those opportunities was coaching with the military programs, with the wounded warrior programs. Uh, so I started in 2015, literally got a call from the current coach at the time, who was one of my coaches when I raced as a junior, um, and called, I mean, literally out of the blue and said, Hey, I think this might be something that you're interested in. If you are, come on out. You know, there's a camp in California. And I was like, okay, well, I'm saying yes to everything. So here goes. Um, And I've been with them now for five years um, and took over. He retired. And so now I'm the head coach of that cycling program. Uh, And that actually has been really, really beneficial to me as well um, because the whole program works with sailors and coast guardsmen. So I work with Team Navy. Um, every service branch has their own sports program. Um, but everybody that comes into the program is also going through a major life transition, uh, whether it's because of an illness, an injury, they've been wounded in combat or a car accident or have been diagnosed with cancer or multiple sclerosis, uh, whatever the reason, they find themselves in the sports program and are looking for something to do next. Um, and so it's been, I mean, I have learned as much from them, I think, as I have been able to teach them about the very basics of riding and racing. Um, so that was one thing that I said yes to. And then the other major opportunity that I said yes to and and still work with is clean sport. Um, obviously, you know, cycling has a very, open past with doping. Um, and actually now after years and years of fighting against doping, um, I think that it's actually one of the better examples in sports and international sports of kind of airing the dirty laundry and saying like, yeah, we screwed up. We have a really bad history with this and we're making efforts to be clean and to make things better and more transparent. Um, so I started working with USADA, which I think some listeners probably are familiar with the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. And so I've started working with their education program, teaching new athletes, young athletes, you know, development teams and clubs about what their responsibilities are as athletes, either in the testing pool currently, excuse me, or soon to be in the testing pool as they progress through their sport um, and get better. Um, so I work with the education team and talk to them basically about peeing in a cup and what it's like to have somebody come knock on your door at 6am say, Hey, you know, we're here. Pee police, not, well, not pee police. They are actually trying to get away from that, uh, <laughs> stereotype uh, and I'm not helping that, but you know what I mean? It's like, okay, look, yeah, it's, you know, it's not the most glamorous thing, but it's something that's really important to sport um, and is it's really not a difficult thing to do, you know, for every athlete to do their part. It's just being honest and being fair. Um, so I guess in conjunction with working with USADA, I've also been actually just finished my term, <clears throat> my first term with the WADA Athlete Committee, the World Anti-Doping Agency's Athlete Committee. Uh, and that's an international group of athletes from all different sports, summer, winter, Olympics, Paralympics, um, who are advocates for clean sport uh, and then work with their nation's athletes. So the athlete committees from their various you know, home nations 
and then try to figure out, you know, what's the pulse of everything that's going on, what are athletes concerned about, what are they not concerned about, uh, and then work with WADA to advise, you know, advise them on, on what the athletes are saying or what the athletes think. So for anyone who's listening who isn't super familiar with USADA or WADA and how the testing pool works, what exactly is the testing pool for athletes? That's a great question. So it's basically, I guess to sum it up, every sport has athletes in their testing pool. And the testing pool is simply a collection of usually top-level athletes, either nationally or internationally, um, that are competing at a high level. So in cycling, it's, you know, are you fast enough to be, are you a professional or nearly a professional? Are you competing for Team USA, going to World Cups and things like that? That's when the anti-doping agencies really start to take notice internationally of athletes. uh, And then they conduct anti-doping testing, usually through a collection of urine or blood or both typically um, to make sure that athletes are competing clean. So there's a list of prohibited substances uh, that athletes are not allowed to take at any time or are not allowed to take during competitions. Um, <clears throat> so if an athlete is at a competition you know, and they're selected for an anti-doping test, they provide a sample and then that sample is then tested for a panel of prohibited substances. You know, you see um, when athletes get tested, have a positive test, you know, maybe they've had an asthma inhaler or, you know, testosterone where that's like clearly cheating, you know, but somebody who has, you know, asthma or has exercise induced asthma maybe needs that inhaler, like literally to breathe and to survive. So um, if you are an athlete at the elite level, you know, there are ways if you have a medical need for something, then you can get an exemption, basically a doctor's note saying, you know, you have diabetes and you need insulin uh, to survive. Whereas somebody who doesn't have diabetes and takes insulin, well, would really get very sick, but, um, it could be a performance enhancing substance. So a lot of times when an athlete, if an athlete tests positive, usually the statement that they give out afterwards Without, well, with very few exceptions, they say, I'm getting the B sample tested. So what does that mean? Yeah. So any time that an athlete provides a sample urine, the sample, the total volume is divided into two parts, an A sample and a B sample. And that's done because of sample storage for long-term, as well as in the event of a positive test. So they test the A sample first, and then if that comes back clean, okay, great, you know, go on. Um, They might store the B sample for, you know, a number of years. Um, But if the A sample comes back positive, then it's up to the athlete. And this is where it gets kind of in my mind, not really that fair, because if an A sample comes back positive, the burden of proof of innocence falls to the athlete. So they say, okay, your A sample is positive. All right, now it's up to me to have, say, I want to have my B sample tested. um, And then you can actually go to the lab when they are testing your B sample and see it done in person. Um, If you... If you know that you cheated, if you know that you had a prohibited substance in your system, you can decline to have your B sample tested. Um, But most athletes don't, I think, because they're trying to prove their innocence. Um, You know, and it could be, it's very, very, very rare, but there could be a false positive in their A sample. Um, And so that would be, you know, a reason if an athlete truly is like, look, I know that I did everything right. I, you know, declared any cold medications that I'm taking when I'm, when I was tested. Um, so that would be, that would be why a B sample would be tested. And then if the B sample comes back positive too, then the discussion shifts to sanctions. So depending on the severity of the cheating, you know, was it intentional or not? Did you just take a cold medicine that had a prohibited substance in it and you really were sick? Or, you know, were you taking human growth hormone and you knew exactly what you were doing? Those are, you know, kind of at two different ends of the spectrum. 
because that's when it gets a little bit sticky because we talked about this a little bit on a cycling tips episode previously when it was announced that Sophie DeVoist uh, had tested positive for a steroid and we that it was the episode we had Jonathan Botters on and kind of we're talking to him about how do you how do you prove yourself innocent because really once your a sample comes back positive there's not really a way to to prove yourself innocent no it can be excuse me no it can be difficult and it can be very expensive i mean i think that that's something that most people don't realize uh, until you know they know somebody directly who's been through you know a positive test um it's something that has been identified by the WADA Athlete Committee, by the Athletes Advisory Council you know, in the U.S., that it can be a very, very costly uh, experience to have to prove your innocence. It's the only time that I know of where you are guilty until proven innocent rather than mm-hmm. innocent until proven guilty. Um, and there are – talk is cheap, but you know there are – movements to have more legal aid available for people that need lawyers fees, for instance, or they want to appeal their, their decision, you know, a number of years ago, I think it was, it was fairly famous. I don't remember the athlete, but, um, with, I think it was hammer actually nutrition, um, that had a contaminated substance in, I don't remember the the details, but let's say an energy gel because it was manufactured in a facility that also made some kind of prohibited substance. Um, and so that athlete, you know, appealed the decision and, and won because they were able to prove that the substance was contaminated. That kind of appeal is very, very expensive. Um, and so if you are, you know, a struggling professional, you know, semi-professional cyclist, that's not necessarily an option for you as opposed to somebody, you know, who's on a top tier level team, has tons of sponsors and endorsements and a full team, you know, of lawyers behind them. It's a very different situation. Um, and it can be, it can be really tough. It can be really, really tough. Um, what is it that you, when, when you're working with WADA to try to kind of figure out what it is that you're worried about or kind of what you're not worried about. What are some of the things that you guys, you and the other athletes that you work with, what do you pay attention to in in sports? Most of the last three years, I started with the WAD Athlete Committee in January 2017, and it went through December 2019. Um, I've applied for an additional term. The WAD AC members are appointed. Um, so you have to apply for reappointment and then it gets, your application gets weighed and stuff. So I'm actually not all that confident that I'm going to be reappointed because I have had some uh, very strong opinions that I've voiced to uh, some of the higher ups at WADA. Um, but maybe that's for a different conversation. So the last, the last three years have been dominated by the Russian doping scandal um, which if you've seen, excuse me, if you've seen the documentary, uh, that was on Netflix, it won an Oscar called Icarus, uh, by Brian Fogel, um, that kind of exposed the Russian state sponsored state sanctioned doping and cheating as well as doping. Um, in the 2014 games, that was the main focus of, of the documentary. But anyway, that mm-hmm. has completely commanded our attention um, over the last three years and dealing with that and you know how do you how do you clean athletes in Russia or Russian athletes who are living and training abroad how do they get a fair shake out of it um, so that was that was a big focus a huge focus for us um, and caused a lot of stress for the committee um, but when we were not talking about that, uh, one of the things <clears throat> kind of spurred by the Russian scandal actually uh, was developing a charter of athletes' rights, um, which is essentially just like a bill of rights for athletes uh, in the anti-doping process. You know that they have the right to fair and uncompromised testing protocols. They have the right to education about what a prohibited substance is or what the testing process is like, um, and so. 
that was probably the biggest accomplishment, like actually accomplished thing that we did in the three years I was on the term or on the committee. Um, and that is up on the website now. Um, I think it's, it's really awesome. Um, Ben Sanford from New Zealand, he worked a ton on it, um, as well as a number of other members, um, to get this thing written and ironed out and passed. So those were the two biggest things. Um, but a lot of it was just dealing with athletes who were really, really unhappy and not confident in the anti-doping system, um, surrounded by the Russian scandal. Yeah. Do you, cause that's been a huge topic of conversation since it was announced that, um, Russia wouldn't be allowed to compete in the Olympics, which is kind of still up in the air. I'm not like 100% sure on the situation there. And then there's all the talk of like, what about the Russian athletes that weren't involved and don't have any doping allegations or anything against them? Um, can you, are you allowed to give me kind of your opinion on that or are you bound by secrecy? Oh no, I have opinions and I am not afraid to share them. Uh, want to hear them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, I think a lot of people, especially if they, if they follow sports or international sports saw, um, in, I guess it was November, um, sometime in November, I don't remember the exact date, but, um, that the WADA executive committee voted, it was this big headline because they voted unanimously to ban Russia for four years. Well, there's a big asterisk with that that goes along with that because it's not just as simple as, you know, they're banned and no, no Russian athletes will be competing. Um, of course, Russia appealed uh, to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, CAS, um, and that is that appeal is an ongoing process uh, that will likely go until March. Um, I think that <clears throat> the the recommendation it's a nice you know it's a nice gesture towards clean sport. However, there are tons of loopholes. You know, it's still it would still allow for a quote-unquote neutral team um, of athletes like there was in Pyeongchang in 2018 at the Winter Games. Um, Correct. I remember the, like, the neutral something of Russian athletes. Yeah, the, the neutral team. Or something. Yeah, the neutral team was called Olympic Athletes from Russia. Yeah. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> we all know that that's the Russian team. And yeah. and really, I mean, it's it's kind of – some aspects of it are, you know, really frustrating. Some are really sad. Um, and a lot of it, I think, is it's horrible for the athletes of Russia because not only it's this whole, this is like a soap opera. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. So, you know, it goes back to 2015 when there were allegations in athletics and track and field um, that there was widespread and state-sanctioned doping in athletics. And the IF for athletics banned them. They've been banned since 2015 in athletics. Um, in 2016, um, you know, there was a report that came out, the McLaren report, you know, that showed evidence of widespread doping, huge state-sponsored, I mean, like from the highest levels, the ministries of sport in Russia, you know, just deep, deep-seated um, corruption and or corruption of sport, I should say, and cheating um, as a you know societal government endorsed problem. Um, and so this has been going on. We've known about it. You know, the WADA athlete committee before I was on it called for more investigations into all sports, Olympic and Paralympic, because you know it's like okay, well, if this is happening to this degree in athletics in one sport, then, you know, you kind of, it's probably likely that it's happening somewhere else. Um, and it turned out to be that it was, it's totally widespread. Um, and so the government from the very beginning of this whole investigation has been, I think, betraying their own athletes, you know, betraying the Russian athletes because through the investigation process, you know, evidence has been destroyed or manipulated or 
new information has been planted, you know, to try to um, incriminate some of the whistleblowers, things like that. Like it just, it just keeps getting worse and worse. Um, And it's horrible for the clean athletes, you know, that, that are in Russia or any of the athletes that are in Russia who may not have had any input or any option other than to dope or, you know, to be doped um, in as part of the system. So it's really horrible, uh, I think, what happened to the Russian athletes. Um, I was one of nine members or 17 members on the committee. I was one of nine members of the WADA committee to recommend a total ban uh, with no option for neutral athletes. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's not an opinion that I or any of my uh, compatriots took lightly. Sorry if you can hear my dog. I think my husband's coming home right now. A, a total ban is not something that any of us recommended or supported lightly because it is effectively you know, a death sentence for athletes who, depending on their sport or their age, they may only have one shot at the games or at a world championships. But I think because of the actions that their government took against them, corrupting the data from their testing labs, you know, planting evidence, deleting evidence that the government that controls their whole sports system is not is not getting on board with the clean the clean athlete wagon, if you will. Um, and I think it's really telling that their new head of Rusada, the Russian anti-doping agency. Um, that even he was like, look, you know, just let us just take our sanction. You know, the four-year ban that was recommended two months ago. It's like, let's just take the sanction. Don't appeal it. He submitted actually a letter saying that he did not agree with the decision to appeal. Um, and I think that's really telling. You know, I think that there are people within their whole system that really want things to change. There are people outside of the Russian system that really want things to change for the better. Um, and so hopefully... Over the next couple months, we'll see some significant change occur. Uh, and whether that takes form of a ban or you know, a limited number of, of athletes at the games, I don't know what will happen. But you know, right now, the appeal process is ongoing, um, and it'll be, I would say, at least until March, uh, until, until that's worked out. So, Yeah, that's – I mean, that sounds completely bananas, but – also, it's bananas that they're not that there's people within the system that are that are agreeing with the ban. Yeah, that's. I mean, yeah, you're right. That's very telling. Yeah. Um, and my heart goes out to all of the athletes that are in Russia that like didn't want to be part of it, or like you said, some of them might not have had a choice. Yeah, you know, and, so. and there's plenty of sports where you start, you compete, you're at your peak when you're still a junior, Yeah, you know, gymnasts, yeah, like your skaters, like gymnastics, you know, they're kids. It's one thing, yeah. you know, it's, it's a, maybe a little bit better or, or maybe a little bit less bad, you know, if you're talking about adults, but a lot of these athletes are kids. Ugh, yeah. My skin crawl. Yeah. So if it's, if it does come to like a ban or if their appeal goes through or whatever happens, what are kind of the next steps like that you know of that could happen after that? Just with the Olympics coming up pretty close after that, it seems like there's not a lot of window. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's a big concern. Um, I, I would be absolutely shocked if the, if Cass handed down a stronger sanction than what water recommended. You know, if they did say, all right, well, you're banned entirely for four years, I would be shocked. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. But even if they do, if they do uphold the recommendation and say, okay, you are officially banned for the next four years, uh, but you are allowed to have athletes compete who can prove that they have not been incriminated in any kind of, you know, scandal or the reports or have had, you know, their data tampered with, um, which those athletes are not the ones that would be tampering with their data. It's somebody in the lab. Um, so then a vetting process would take place to determine who, who those athletes are, 
Um, or it could be something that, you know, falls kind of back towards the IFs to the international federations, which is what happened in Rio in 2016. You know, WADA said at that point, they said, yep, absolutely. You guys are going to be, you know, you guys are banned, but there was not a mechanism for a nation for any, anybody other than an individual athlete at that time, there is no way for anybody other than an individual athlete to be banned, to be sanctioned. Now, Mm -hmm. There is the new code has <clears throat> ex, uh, expanded on that to include you know team support because athletes athletes who cheat almost never do it do by themselves you yeah. know they have some help whether that's you know a team doctor a coach you know a, a team coach or just a physician um, teammates you know that know about it or support it or are also doing it like it's very 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 rare that it's only one person. Um, so now the code has been expanded to cover all signatories. So anybody, you know, that essentially anybody that has anything to do with sport at the elite level, um, which is awesome because, you know, now people who are enabling this behavior can also be sanctioned, which is, which is really good. It's a really important step um, for serious change. And it's kind of, I mean, doping is a, very well-known topic in cycling. It's talked about a lot. Um, it's, we have a very tainted past. And like you said, it's because of that, we're kind of move, moving in a positive direction. So do you see like significant change in the sport of cycling in terms of doping? Um, I think, well, it's hard for me to say specifically within cycling, um, but I do think that significant change is happening. Uh, Working with USADA and their education team, you know, they've identified that junior athletes and development athletes are the ones that should be targeted for education. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, you know, if you can kind of cut the problem off before it starts, you know, and teach athletes about healthy living and healthful eating. And so if, you know, if athletes at a young age before they get into the testing pool, if they know, okay, this is, this is how I should live my life. You know, this is the healthy way to eat and live and I don't need supplements or I don't need to take drugs to cheat. Um, but also I think a really important part of this that drives a number of, of, you know, that drives lots of people to cheat is that too often an athlete's, entire identity is tied up in them being whatever type of athlete. Um, and I definitely fell into that category. You know, if, if I was introducing myself, I was, Oh, I'm Greta, you know, I'm a cyclist instead of I'm Greta. I love to read. I write, you know, I do whatever, you know, like gardening. Um, and so I think if we can culturally, if we can get away from athletes being, so tied to that identity, um, then I think that will will help tremendously. And it'll also help when, yeah, like like you said, when when athletes eventually step away from their sport, because when you're part of a sport and especially at the highest level, you that is your whole identity. You feel so attached to that. And when you're done, I mean, we could do an entire another podcast on retirement and what it does to a person, but even the people who retire gracefully struggle. Absolutely. You know, the, the people who, you know, they go out on top, retire on their own terms. Still, they're leaving a huge portion of their life behind. Um, you know, and so I think that that mindset is changing, I think, because, lots of athletes have been really open and honest about their struggles with retirement. I mean, I, we talked a little bit about it earlier that I had a horrible transition. You know, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't feel like I had any transferable skills. I didn't know what I was interested in, you know, and now that's changing. You know, the USOPC now has a whole team. They've identified that they have a whole team of people that their sole job is to help athletes figure out what they want to do when they're not an athlete anymore. You know, what do they want to do when they're not training? You know, you can't just go back to your room or go back to your apartment and read the internet. 
I mean, and that's what plenty of people do. I definitely yeah. did it. And it's like, and then you fall into this hole and you're not bettering yourself in any way. You're just scrolling through Twitter for hours at a time and, you know, your brain is disintegrating. It's like yeah. not good. So well, I remember when I retired, you sent me a class. Yeah. Um, Tuck transition to next step transition transition to business that I looked into and looked awesome. I got pulled into podcasting, so I didn't get to do do more with it. But I mean, there are a lot of things out there. Absolutely, there are tons of resources now. It's just a matter of finding them and making sure that you know kind of what's available before you actually need it. You know, and that's when I talk with new athletes or young athletes, it's okay. Hey, you know, welcome to the development team. You know, you're going to go to your first race. What do you do at the hotel? You know, when you're not racing or training, what are you going to do when you're not doing this? Oh, well, I'd never thought about it. Um, and so there, there are a lot of really good programs at the tuck transition next step transition to business through Dartmouth um, mm-hmm. university is phenomenal. I went to that in April of this last year. Um, I know a number of the other Ivy league schools have programs that are now being expanded to athletes as well as military. Um, and actually through my own work with the wounded warriors, I've learned that there's a tremendous amount of similarity between a military you know, between military transitions back to civilian life and athletes transitions from competition back to civilian life, for lack of a better term. Um, And I think a lot of it is tied into that sense of identity for military and for athletes. And there are now a number of programs, the Tuck program is one, that pairs military, especially special forces, but pairs military and elite athletes together and you can learn from each other you know, talk about your different experiences network and figure out that okay it's not just me like there are plenty of other you know really qualified highly accomplished people that are also trying to figure out what they want to do and are going to help me and I will help them to make that next step happen wow that's really interesting I'd actually never thought of that but that makes a ton of sense um yeah the relationship between coming out of the military and also coming out of sport and you you work with the wounded warriors project and you teach them about bikes and how does that help them yeah so the the program that i work with is called navy wounded warrior um, and it's a sports program that's effectively a sports recreation therapy program for Navy and Coast Guard uh, members who've been injured, wounded, fallen ill with either you know a temporary thing or a long-term illness. Uh, you know, somebody going through cancer treatment would be eligible for this program. Um, somebody with a spinal cord injury is eligible. Whether it's <clears throat> excuse me, whether it's directly service-related or just incurred while in service, um, they're eligible. So I coach their cycling program, and people come in at an intro camp. Most of them know how to ride a bike, but most of them have not ridden a bike since they got a driver's license. Um, (laughs) So it's very... It's teaching them the very basics, the foundation. You know, for some people, it's sit here, hold on here, this is how your brakes work. Ride that way. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, you know, and other people come in with, you know, triathlon background or they just kind of, you know, they commuted to work or school or whatever. So people come in with all different levels of experience in cycling. Very, very few come in with any kind of race experience. So in about six months, we take them, myself, I have an assistant coach and a mechanic. And so the three of us are tasked with taking some, the most we've had at one time is like 50, I think, but taking them from square one and hold on here, this is how gears work, to doing a race uh, in about six months. Um, And so they 
get a very, very accelerated course in how to ride a bike, how, you know, basic bike handling skills. You know, we do a lot of skills and drills and then give them homework to do when they're not with us. You know, we, we have anywhere from a week to two week long camp uh, where they come and ride nearly every day. They're also doing other sports at the same time. So they are super busy um, and working really hard. But the whole idea is to show them things that they can still do despite being injured or ill or needing some kind of adaptation. And cycling is really nice because anybody can do it, no matter what their what their physical deal is. A bike can be adapted to meet any person's needs, whether it's riding on a tandem, riding a recumbent bike, you know, a three-wheeled recumbent bike, or a hand cycle. There's some kind of human-powered bicycle machine for anybody. Um, yeah, because I remember when you were on 2016, you had this really cool uh, shifting situation which was basically like beginning of ETAP, right? Kind of. Yeah, I actually have ETAP now and love it. Like, I don't know what took me so long to get on the electronic shifting bandwagon, but I am now in 100%. Uh, (laughs) So for listeners, I guess that, that don't know me or haven't met me, I was eligible for paracycling because I'm missing my left hand and forearm. So I wore a prosthetic, I wear a prosthetic when I ride um, so that I have you know even control uh, of my bike on my handlebars. And then I just moved all of the shifting and the braking to the right side. So I used a splitter for the brakes uh, so that I could have both brake calipers operated with one lever and then set up with mechanical shifting, set up a bar end shifter, like a TT shifter at the end of my drops for the front chain ring, and then use the normal STI lever for the back shifting. Um, And that's how I had my bike set up for years. Um, I remember when hydraulic brakes came out and I was so pumped about that because I had started getting basically like tennis elbow from pulling both brake calipers with one hand for eight years. Uh, And when I switched to hydraulic, it was cleared up in a week. I mean, it was like a revolution had occurred. I'm like, Oh wow, this is, this is so much easier. This is how everybody else feels. Wow. a A cool example of how adaptable bicycles can be. And also, Especially, yeah, like with hydraulic brakes and with the uh, with the new uh, electronic shifting that basically every bike will have. And then next, we on the last Nerd Alert podcast for those of you cycling fans that are listening to Cycling Tips fans that listen to all of our podcasts across the whole Cycling Tips platform. Um, the Nerd Alert podcast talked about how in ten years, um, manual shifting is going to be irrelevant. So I agree. That's a thing that I agree too. I love electronic shifting. Yeah. You know, and Um, it's, I mean, it benefits everybody. You know, this is one of those things that's like a universal design feature. It's, you know, it's as easy to shift as it is to click a computer mouse or a trackpad. You you can have strength impairments or, you know, need to set up a satellite shifter or whatever. I mean, electronic makes it happen. And that was not always the case was not always possible with mechanical shifting. So it's a really, really cool time to be involved in cycling and in paracycling at the elite level, at the development level. I mean, stuff is, stuff is going on. It's awesome. Yeah, man, we're, um, we're about at time because we, this was amazing. I feel like I learned a ton and also um, just love chatting with you. But we, we didn't even get into paracycling, so I might have to have you back on to talk about the Paralympics when they happen. Oh, yes. Yeah. Also, everyone's talking about the Olympic year, but there's also the Paralympics is, is coming up, too. I got opinions on that, too. So I want to hear, don't worry I about it. hear those opinions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, thank you so much for, for your time. This has been amazing. I hope everyone learned something and enjoyed this. 
Um, thank you for listening to How About Dem Apples? How about Dem Apples? How about Dem Apples? <laughs> yeah.